Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. I am here with Steve Cooper, our host. Steve, is that you? It is. It is. I'm back from the moon. I'm coming back. That is the, have they put the hotel on the moon yet? Because <laughs> they have the Mars Hotel is on the moon. Right? <laughs> is that where they put that? <laughs> I think they've got a branding issue there, Steve. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> but you have been out in the field, beating the bushes and, and digging up uh, uh, new podcast uh, guests, sure. and we're, uh, we're we're glad you did that. And we're, I'm glad you're back because I'm frankly exhausted from carrying this podcast myself for the last right. three or four weeks. It's just been yeah. terrible. The work never stops, Tom. It doesn't, and it doesn't, and the, and the rewards are so few. They really are. <laughs> but uh, our guest today is Jennifer Freed. She's the CEO and founder of Explorer Surgical, and it's, yeah. uh, it's a neat device I'll, I'll let you get into, but it basically is, they call it a, a, a playbook for the, uh, for the OR suite. Tell us a bit about Explorer Surgical. Yeah, I, th- I think the, uh, the idea has been, been out there for a long time that, that surgery is the equivalent of flying a plane or doing anything else dangerous in life and that uh, everything that we do that's dangerous, whether it's jumping out of an airplane, flying a plane, driving, you know, being the, the engineer of a train or being in an auto, you know high-speed auto race or any of that stuff, they all have playbooks in terms of how they intend to go about their business on any given, in, any, in, any given voyage or adventure. And the, uh, the uh, surgical suite's no different. I mean, it's a very vital place, and doctors do things differently from one another in terms of the way that they operate, and so Jennifer's come up with a system um, to convey that information to the surgical team before they go into the operating room so they understand the, the tendencies and needs of the physician, um, and it plays in with a lot of the things around checklist and workflow technologies. Uh, that we're starting to see uh, get adopted into healthcare, so it's very cool. Yeah, and there were there were two stats that surprised me, and I won't give them away. But but the the mm-hmm. level of turnover of operating room teams uh, mm-hmm. per year was was surprisingly high, and the amount of wasted uh, disposable uh, medical products because because they don't understand what the surgeon might necessarily need, they just open right. everything up and then throw it away if they don't need it. So once it's open, it's of no use to anybody other than in that in that one instance. So. Yeah, and and that's I think that's the that's sort of like a you know what I would call hard way of uh, measuring the return on investment. Of course, the other way to measure return on investment should be more productive uh, surgical suites. So they're in and they're out. They can use the suite more frequently, which is good for the hospitals, and also treat the patients in accordance to the way the doctors prefer, which should lead to better outcomes. So there's all sorts of good good reasons to to use our product. Yeah, it's, it's a neat product. And uh, you alluded to it or hinted at it earlier, uh, but there is the, the Steve Krupa book list, book of the week <laughs> mentioned in this podcast. So for bonus points, if our yeah. listeners identify it, they can uh, tweet it out and they'll get retweeted perhaps. <laughs> yeah. We won't tell them what it is, but it's in there. It's, it's in, in there. the podcast. Yep. It's All in right. the podcast. Let's hear from uh, Jennifer Freed of Explorer Surgical. <laughs> Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with Jennifer Freed, the CEO and founder of Explorer Surgical. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very cool to have you on. I, I think people are going to be very interested uh, in your new company and your, and, and your value proposition for uh, the OR 
Um, yeah, as you know, I, I want to sort of get to know you a little bit before we dig into the company. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that, that this is your first startup, but somewhere along the line, you decided you wanted to do a startup. And I'd love to understand um, how that came about and how you convinced yourself that it was a good idea to put yourself through that event. Yeah, um, this is my first startup company. All right. So out of undergrad, I worked as a consultant at Bain & Company and then was working as a healthcare venture capitalist while I went to get my MBA at the University of Chicago. When I was in business school, my focus was I want to be a venture capitalist. I want to focus on investing in the next great healthcare technology companies. I was really excited about all of the innovation, all of the change in the market, and saw a lot of opportunity. Uh, along the way, I met my co-founder for the company, uh, Dr. Alex Langerman, who is a head and neck surgeon and an operating room researcher. So I met him during business school and started collaborating with him on his research and on a project which ultimately became Explorer Surgical. That's cool. I, I got to ask you, was there something in, in, your, in your life that led you to healthcare, or was it just uh, something that you just got interested in um, by pure chance? I was always fascinated by healthcare, but never had the interest in becoming a clinician. When I was an undergrad in school, I was studying applied math and economics. And one of the things that really struck me when, you know, we were looking at different industries and thinking about economic thought was that healthcare is really one of the only industries where consumers can't make rational decisions. There are so many economic distortions in the way that decision-making has to happen in healthcare, yet it's so fundamental to everyone's life. So I was always really interested in what are the inefficiencies in healthcare, and I always loved technology. So I always wanted to find a way to merge the two, and this has really been a, a great application of that for me. You know, I, I think as the listeners know, I've been doing this a while in healthcare, and I, and I will tell you that that, that that is why a lot of people get attracted to healthcare because they look at it and they say, hey, this system doesn't follow any of the economic reasoning that I was taught in life. Not at all. <laughs> and and I'd, I'd love to, you know, everybody's got their point of view. Most of the time, the people that have a point of view, you know, have something at stake, right? They're either an insurance company or a doctor or maybe a corporation that, that buys health insurance for its employees. Um, but as an, as a, as an, as, as someone interested in economics and mathematics, what is your point of view as to why that sort of irrational behavior or better stated, the opportunity for rational behavior for consumers doesn't exist in healthcare? I think a lot of it just comes from the way that the purchasing marketplace was set up for healthcare. So you think about health insurance. In every other industry, you think about insurance as a way to pool risk to prevent catastrophic costs. So you're never going to go and file an insurance claim because, you know, somebody has a really small nick that you see in, on the side door of your car, right? If you even care about it at all, you're going to go and pay out of pocket and you're going to find a mechanic that you can pay 75 bucks to in cash to fix it for you. Yet in healthcare. We think about everything that we do, like a dentist visit or a preventive care to your primary care doctor, is something that should go through insurance. So, personally, I just don't really think it's aligned in the right way for people to be 
thinking about quality and value. Um, but I do think that's starting to change. Yeah. I mean, in some ways that's, uh, yeah, that's a response to what, what people wanted from the insurance companies, but you're right. It, 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 I always describe health insurance as a combination of, um, health insurance and healthcare subsidization. Right. It isn't really just, you know, insurance. And, and of course that's factored into, you know, the underwriting modules of the insurance companies and they're most successful in their business when they have the opportunity to sort of underwrite a population where the subsidized population and the healthy population are well, is well understood and then they can take the middle and actually provide insurance for people that may or may not need health care um, and then price it accordingly. It gets very difficult to do that when the subsidies, the portion of the population that's subsidized gets significant, right? Like in, for example, the public exchanges and so forth. Right, and it's hard because these aren't just numbers, they're people. So you start to get into what I think are some of the most interesting questions in health economics. How do you value an additional year of life if you're thinking about pricing a new drug or bringing it to market? And you can think about this all that you want in the classroom or put it on paper, but it's, it's very different when you start to think about, you know, what if that's my mom or what if that's my kid that you're talking about? And even if you wanted to be rational, I'm not sure most consumers could be. Right. No, it's fair. I mean, the bottom line is uh, for the individual, another year of life is worth everything, right? Yeah. For the economic system, it's not that valuable. Mm-hmm. Not, in fact, one would argue it probably has negative value. And that's where you start to get into just some of those really interesting questions around end-of-life care and what should be provided and who should pay for it and um, access to it. And so maybe that's something for my next company. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, welcome to the healthcare world with your first startup uh, out of Chicago, right? Not necessarily the, the startup capital of the world. But where, you know, you, I'm assuming you've you obviously lived and went to school. So why don't we talk about how this idea came to you? And the way I like to, to maybe position the question is, um, how did you go about funding the company? How did you describe the idea um, to your first round of investors? Yeah, so Alex, who's my co-founder, it's very much Alex's idea, and I have been his partner in terms of creating a product, getting it to market, and executing. So um, I mentioned Alex as a head and neck surgeon, and when I met him, I had been doing things in healthcare, but not in the OR. This was around three and a half years ago at the end of 2013. Alex started telling me about his experiences in surgery. What he said is, you know, about half the time I go into the OR, it's my team. They know me like the back of their hand. Everything is perfectly executed. It's like a symphony. You have all of these people working together in tandem. The other half the time, it's not my main team. There are new nurses or techs or people that are rotating in from other specialties. And, you know, I, I shouldn't drop the F-bomb, but I'll just say that, you know, it can be an effing disaster what goes on in there. And what he started to tell me about was, You know, I'm in the middle of my case. My patient is literally open at the table from shoulder to shoulder, and somebody's handing me the wrong clamp or the wrong retractor because they don't know me and they don't know my case. So I have to literally stop the procedure, stop everything that I'm doing, 
and send a nurse down the hallway so you'll get the right item. So, you know, when I heard that, I was, I was pretty shocked and startled. Um, it's not really what you want to think about when you start thinking about you or a loved one being on that table and having some of those interruptions happen during surgery. And as we started to dig in more, we saw, you know, this was happening in hospitals across the country. So the reason this happens are because surgeons do things differently. So they're trained in different ways. They're taking different clinical approaches to how they're doing a procedure. They have different ways they want the room set up. They have different tools that they're using, and it's ever-changing with new technology. But they have a constantly rotating team of staff that's working with them. And this is also an environment where you see 20 or 30% turnover a year. So, you know, you, you would want this to run as smoothly as you would in other industries where you have everything running like clockwork but the teams just didn't have a whole lot to support them. They're running off of their head or they're running off of pieces of paper. So we wanted to create a software that could keep everybody on the same page at the same time and act like a digital playbook for surgery for each of the different team members. That's interesting. So um, I, I actually didn't realize that, that there were you know, significant differences in the way surgeons performed surgery. So this sounds like a, a workflow product at some level uh, that includes, you know, a materials list for a specific surgeon um, and, a, and, a, and a specific procedure. Is that, a, is, that, is that a way to think about it? Yeah. So, um, so we like, it's workflow management um, or, you know, we'll often call it a playbook. Mm-hmm. So you have your four team members in the OR, sometimes more, your surgeon, anesthesiologist, circulating nurse, and surgical tech. And each of those team members has their own role that they need to be doing in the right order in tandem with everything else that's going on. So what we do is we break down the role step by step for each team member. And and how and, and, and obviously each team member isn't well maybe not obviously, but I, I would imagine they're not gonna have their roles memorized or are is or are there is there real time feedback uh, as the as the surgery progresses? So, so the thing that, so what we saw, when we started talking to surgeons, everybody said, I do this procedure my way, I do it the same way every time. When you start talking to the nurses and techs, they'll say, you know, yes, Dr. So-and-so does it the same way every time they do the case, but they're only doing that case a couple times a week. So if you talk to a nurse working in general surgery, he or she might be doing 40 or 50 different types of cases a year for eight or 10 docs, each who have their own way of doing it. So you may be used to saying, okay, I know this doc likes to use the suture, so you have that ready, but when it's somebody else in the room, it could be something different. So it's a lot to try to keep track of without a more comprehensive technology system. Yeah, so how does it work? Does um, So for example, I remember many years ago I read the work of Atul Gawande, right? He had the the checklist manifesto, which was, you know, every every surgical suite should have a checklist, basically that everybody followed to make sure. But it was mostly safety oriented. It sounds like this is very clinical and procedure oriented. How how does it work from standpoint of, I guess the doc? I'm, I'm going to guess, and then you can tell me if I get it right. That the doctor sort of loads their preferences into into the system. Um, the system then knows what materials need to be present in the OR, and then is sort of the choreo is the choreography for the procedure for that particular doctor then, you know, presented to the nurse team prior to them going into surgery. Is it 
presented in real time? You know, how does that, how does all that uh, come to come out, play out? The answer is you can do it both ways. Uh, we load everything onto our platform, which is web-based. And what we like to do is during the case, we have what we call a, is a big board view. So we have a large screen on the wall of the operating room where it shows, you know, what step of the case are you on? What are the main things that the whole team needs to know? So it can be everything from, you know, hey, this is the part of the case where we typically run into trouble. We have some docs that say, I want everybody to know what Pandora station I want to have playing in the OR. Um, you have that large screen to keep everybody aligned. Then we have individual devices for each team member. So the anesthesiologist, the circulating nurse, and the surgical tech all have their own iPad. And for the surgical tech who's in the sterile field, we'll take the iPad and wrap it in a sterile sleeve so that they have it available real time right there. So you as a scrub can see a picture of what should be on the Mayo stand right now or a video of how do I make sure that this is assembled properly or you can scroll backwards and forwards and see what's coming up next. What I hear a lot from nurses and techs are, I love that I can stay a step or two ahead of my surgeon. I know where they're going with it. Um, we also have everything available offline. So if you want to review a case the night before or if you want to look at something in the morning, you can review it from your phone or your computer. That's very cool. That's very cool. How, how far along are you um, in terms of customers and number of surgeries done? Um, is, are you, in, are you uh, productized in, in, in Chicago? What, what's, the, uh, what's the current status of the product? Yeah, so we're commercializing right now. We have put the software, we've built our commercial alpha, I'll call it. We've put the software in four academic and one community hospital. So it's been a department or two in each, putting it in, having some of those early adopters test it, give feedback. We've done a couple of different case studies. Um, we did an IRB with one academic hospital to study the impact of what we were doing. And now we're getting ready to deploy at larger scale. Wow. So what is the reaction from, uh, from the doctors been? Are they, you know, I, I, and I'll preface this by saying I, I always feel like doctors don't want people telling them what to do. So does the, the system is sort of there to accommodate their needs, but at the same time, it's, is it, isn't it kind of giving them, a, you know, a playbook that they, that they should be following? Or anyway, how, how do they feel about it? Yeah, we customize on a per-surgeon basis. So surgeons love this because as a surgeon, you want to come in and you want to take care of your patient in the way that you're trained to do. You don't want to deal with disruptions or delays because somebody doesn't know what type of vein clamp that you need to have available um, or you know they don't have the right thing ready. They don't know what's coming up. So what surgeons love about this is that they can be prescriptive and make sure that if they go in the room, they're confident that the anesthesiologist knows their anesthetic preferences for the case and that the scrub knows in detail exactly what instruments they're going to be using in what order. And if they're not familiar with they can see pictures. So it doesn't change the surgeon's workflow during the case. They're giving input outside of the cases to make sure that everything is set up to their specifications. Um, but it allows the team to better manage around them. Hey everybody, Tom here. I just want to take a quick break from this conversation to remind you that the registration for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit is now open. So if you're going to join us on November 30th in Boston, go to healthogy.com, that's the word health, 
followed by the letters egy.com, and you can register and be there on November 30th in Boston. Now back to this conversation with Jennifer Freed. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering in the back of my mind, you know, the, lev- the, la- the level of data collection that might be possible. Oh, yeah. So talk to me, talk to me about that. How, what level of data will you be able to collect and what level of analytics do you think you'll be able to produce as this begins to scale? What's really interesting is when you start to look at data in surgery, most of it is perioperative or it's limited to what's being captured in the EMR by your circulating nurse. So pre-op, post-op, it's been very hard to collect real-time data in the sterile field because of the way the technology systems have been set up in and around the OR. What is so cool about what we're doing, so just by using the software, because we break down surgical procedures into each step, we're starting to track a new level of time data how long are you taking on each part of the case and being able to do some predictive analytics real-time around case length. But you can also use it as a platform to capture more granular intraoperative data. So whether that is around operational data, so if you want to say how many times are cases delayed or disrupted because of missing instruments, if you want to start to look at waste and say, how many items are we opening and not using? You can start to capture some of that. Or you could start to think about it as a clinical tool and say, how can I develop a better patient risk score based on some of the things that happen during surgery? And with this, you have a platform where each team member has a way to input that information real time in the sterile field, um, which has never been done before. Interesting. So when you when you talk to physicians, you talk to hospitals. I mean, I, I I totally, I think I think the case that you're making is that this is this is a tool for real time operating efficiency in the surgery suite, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, a uh, financial buyer would would ask the question, well, what is what is my payback? on that operating efficiency. So what are the vectors of financial return for deploying something like this? There are three main levers that we talk about when we're talking to the financial buyers of this. So the first one is reduced time. So being able to set up your cases faster, reducing those intraoperative delays, which is not only time, but it's also quality. The second layer of this is you know, what I really see is the lowest hanging fruit, it's reducing your disposables waste. We see on average between two and $300 of disposable items that are opened and wasted per case, which is insane. It's millions of dollars for the average size hospital. And the number one reason this occurs are because nurses and techs don't know exactly what a surgeon wants. So when you put yourself in those four walls, it's a very specific culture and the culture is open everything because I don't want to have something thrown at me today. You know, if I'm not sure exactly what they want, I'm going to open up everything that I see, which leads to just a tremendous amount of waste. Um, The third uh, lever that we talk about in terms of value is the opportunity to standardize. So by better mapping out where does some of this variability occur, you can start to do more granular analytics not only on some of the things like supply variation, 
So are there docs that are spending hundreds or thousands of dollars more unknowingly by choosing more expensive items? But things like process variation. You know, in um, one of our hospitals, we were working in robotic urology cases, and we saw that one of the surgeons had just a way of commanding the team and organizing the room so that he was getting his case set up 20 minutes faster than everybody else. So being able to see where are those operational efficiencies coming from, who are these gurus that have developed some of these efficiency plays, and sharing them across the department and across the hospital. Excellent. So speed, waste reduction, and reduction in variance. Very sort of Six Sigma kind of stuff there, Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been able to discover any... Um, any measurable clinical effects? Um, I'm not suggesting you need them. I mean, I would imagine that you can quantify those and, and demonstrate a nice return on your product. But is there is there do you, are the clinical effects emergent? In, in other words, you've got to wait for them to wait to see them, or are physicians and nurses coming in and and suggesting that the outcomes are improved through this process? We're interested in studying it. I don't have a large enough sample size to be able to say anything right now. Um, We're pursuing a couple of research grants that are specific to studying outcomes, so some of the short-term clinical outcomes and starting to see if using a tool like this can better predict what those will be or ideally be able to drive change. Um, You know, you you see some studies around uh, what is the situational awareness of the team in the room, and does everybody know exactly what's happening at the same time? And those are the types of things that we think can really help drive better outcomes for the patients in, in, in the long run. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to bet that the outcomes get better. It's just, you're right, it's going to take time and, and, and a large sample size to, to really prove that. But you know what they say, uh, you know, happy doctors is a happy hospital, right? Well, completely. And, you know, also thinking about some of the operational impacts of it, Surgeons are some of the biggest revenue sure. drivers yeah. hospitals. So it's really important for hospitals to be able to attract them and retain them and keep them happy. Excellent. A very, very cool product. Um, and I, I think very sort of very straightforward value proposition. Uh, I'm sure it's going to do really well. Let me, let me ask you a couple of questions outside of the product since, um, uh, you know, we like to, we like to get our guests to, give us some tips on starting companies or, or give us some ideas as to how to motivate people, uh, processes, you know, obviously when you start a company, it's, um, it's like creating a whole new thing, right? A whole, you know, whole brand new entity. Yeah. Um, what, did you have any, any, any preconceived notions about what you wanted your company to sort of be about or be like from, from a value standpoint? And if you did, uh, how did you go about trying to indoctrinate those values to the people that you recruited into the business? Yeah, so, you know, when we think about what we're doing, um, there, I think there's, there's a lot of potential here to make this a really big business and have a lot of operational and financial impact on hospitals. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really the stories that we start hearing about, you know, things that happen in the operating room that should never happen that can be prevented by a tool like this that gets our team aligned and motivated to really say, what can we do that changes surgery for the better? And if you take this part of the hospital uh, 
that is the most intense intervention that a lot of patients are going to experience in their lifetime, how can we make sure that we're doing everything that we can uh, to make things run smoothly? So we, when we hire new people or bring them in, you know, we're always talking about why do you want to do this? What value do you see from this? Tell us about your experience in the operating room. And, you know, we look for people that say, wow, that should never happen, and I want to do my part to change that. That's great. So how big are you now? How many employees do you have today? We have four full-time employees and another 10 or so that are part-time or contracted. Nice. So that's efficiency, right? You got a product that you're <laughs> running with, uh, you know, basically, if you count the 10 at nine people, you know. Right? <laughs> yeah, we're um, running as scrappy as we can right now while we get the business up and running. Who, who's writing all the software for you? Are you writing software? Who, who's writing the software? No, um, <laughs> our chief technology officer, Eugene Fine, has been with us for about a year and a half, um, and he runs a team that is offshore, but he's led all of the software development for the company. Wonderful. And is, he's a true visionary with technology and also one of the most organized people I've ever met in, in my life. This guy just tracks everything that we do, has everything so thought out and well organized in terms of what have we done and where are we going? How are we prioritizing it? How are we mapping everything that we've done and documenting it? So he's been just a pleasure to work with. Well, congratulations. Uh, one of the, one of the great things about this modern era of innovation is, is it was particularly in the, in the, you know, the construction of new software and IT systems is, you know, you can get a product out there in front of a customer pretty quick, right? And you can get them trying it, and that's how it gets better. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I got to ask one last question, and, and then I'll and then we'll wrap it up. But, you know, how did you know you were on the right track? Did you use a lot of feedback from customers? Did you rely on your founding physician to give you the feedback? How did you know you were on track in terms of sort of the ergonomics and the operating uh, methodologies of the product? Yeah. So I was I was working on the business part time for a long time uh, when I was in school, and then when I was working as a VC. And some of the things that I saw when I was doing due diligence as a VC is, you know, you talk about a new product or, you know, how big is a problem that you're solving. And I'd get excited if, you know, half of the people that I called for some of the due diligence calls said, oh, yeah, I like this. This is interesting. This is better than what we have. And what I continue to see today is when I put our product or in front of a new surgeon or a new nurse, we just, I just hear, wow, you know, this is amazing. I deal with this all the time in my OR. It is such a frustration. This is so hard for me. You know, having a tool like this would be incredible. And I, I think I just saw so much enthusiasm for what we were doing and such a big need and gap in the market. It, it got to the point for me that I just couldn't imagine doing anything but pursuing this. Terrific. Well, listen, thanks for joining me. Uh, l- last thing would be, um, how can people get in touch with you? Are you, uh, are you on Twitter? Do you have a website, Facebook page, LinkedIn? What's the best way to find out about your company? Um, we are on all of those things. Uh, the easiest way is through our website, www.explorersurgical.com. And my email is jennifer at explorersurgical.com. We're pretty easy to find. And you're tweeting, or you're just, are you just following? <laughs> we're we're tweeting and following. Um, so we have a 
company Twitter account that's at Explorer Surge, and then I'm on there as um, at Jen underscore Freed. Jen with two N's, so not one. Yep, you're a two N Jen, right? <laughs> yeah, my trainer at the gym. There's there's another Jen in my class, so. When he wants to get my attention, he yells, double N, double N. Nice. <laughs> well, very good to meet you. Um, terrific um, start to the company. Congratulations, and, and thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And that is a wrap. Jennifer Freed, thank you for joining us on the Breaking Health Podcast. We look forward to following Explorer Surgical Story. Steve Krupa, great to have you back from the Mars Hotel on the Moon. And uh, it's good to have you in the big chair leading these great conversations. Breaking Health Podcast listeners, once again, thank you for your support. If you could uh, give us a ranking on iTunes, that would be an enormous help. Tell your friends about the Breaking Health Podcast, that's always good. And of course, feel free to shoot me an email, tom at healthag.com. That is the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. You can also go to healthag.com to register for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit which is happening on November 30th. So we'll uh, look forward to seeing you in Boston and tune in next week for another great tale of innovation from the Breaking Health Podcast.